Picture this. You are in ancient Egypt, taking a stroll along the banks of the Nile. Your sandal-covered feet are protected from the hot rocks in the midday sun, but the green grass beyond the riverbanks is cool and refreshing. The river twists and turns as you walk along its edge, and you stop for a moment at the very edge of the river bank. You take off your large-brimmed hat, a requirement for life in the ancient world, and dip it into the river water for a refreshing cool. As you reach down, you notice little flakes glinting in the sand. Excitedly, you gather the sandy mixture into your hat, start spilling the water out of it, carrying away the fertile soil and sand mixture, and leaving behind those golden flakes. Congratulations, you have found natural gold in the ancient world. Now, you haven't found very much of it, admittedly, but gold is a pretty amazing substance, especially in the ancient world. It is so soft, so soft, it can be hammered into exceedingly thin sheets that lose no luster or color. In nature, it never tarnishes and is... Uh, extremely, it takes extremely potent acids and bases to dissolve it. It's sometimes mixed with other metals in an ore, and often those other metals are highly valued too. Silver, gold, copper, and even lead are all found mixed together in nature. Because gold can be found naturally, like in the scenario we just imagined on the banks of the Nile, people in the ancient world were very familiar with it and wanted more of it. After all, in civilizations from Sumer to the Aztecs, its purity and eternal shine were emblems of the world of the divine. By the time of the kingdom of Israel, gold was pretty well established as the universal means of transferring money but it was so valuable that it couldn't be easily used for small transactions. In fact, one of the seven words for gold in Hebrew is the word for pure gold, and it literally means locked gold, as in if this is being sold, all the other stores must be locked up because there's no way to compete with gold that pure. Instead of using gold for everyday transactions then, the kingdom of Israel used silver, measured in units of weight known as shekels. How heavy the silver was determined how much it was. A shekel of silver uh, is about a half ounce, or if you're using metric, 14.1 grams. And a shekel of silver was usually the equivalent of four Greek drachma or Roman denarii, the coins that were later minted or about four days of work for the average laborer. Every year, every Jewish male adult gave the temple a half shekel of silver in dues, and this had to be paid when they were designed in Jewish coins, no matter who was in control of Judea at the time. 
It's no surprise then that the ancient Hebrew word for silver, kesef, is the modern Hebrew word for money in general. The ancients then actually had more daily contact with precious metals than we do, not only using them for daily transactions in the marketplaces, but also more familiar with their origin, since landowners would often smelt the metals from their own land. That's one of the reasons why it's one of the common biblical images for forgiveness and atonement and at the core of what having a change of heart meant, to refine the soul. Earlier, we quoted one of the earliest references to refining in the Bible from Proverbs 17.3, earlier in the service. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord refines the heart. Now, if you look this up on your own, uh, you will find that most translations say the Lord tests the heart. The Lord tests the heart. But this usage of test really does mean refine in the way we use it today. You see, silver and gold ore need to be heated to just the right temperature to melt the pure metal away from the dross and slag. Too low, and the ore won't melt. Too high, and the dross will melt too and continue to be mixed together. So make sure that the temperature of the furnace was correct. The ancients needed to test it, to test the furnace. They didn't have access to an infrared thermometer, for some reason, they couldn't just run out and pick one up. But they did recognize that certain clays and metals melted at certain temperatures and would, keep the te would test the temperature by sacrificing some of those clay or other metals. For this reason, testing silver meant melting the metal out of its ore and then blowing off the white lead oxide dross as it cooled. What does all of this, admittedly fascinating information, tell us about God's action in refining our soul? Well, the main thing I want to point out is that this is much more involved than we tend to think of. It's a nice image. We read the proverb. We see this come up in Malachi and in Peter, and we say, oh, this is great. But there's a lot more to it than we tend to think. In his letter to the churches of Asia Minor, Peter offers an initial word of encouragement there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Here again, we see this test and purify construction coming together. Remember, test and purify means refine, or soul is being refined your faith is being refined. Given that, it seems that Peter is saying that if we face difficulty and danger in this world, our faith can stand it. Not only can our faith stand the test, but as the dross, the, the sin, the hatred, the dehumanization, the disconnection from each other and God, that will be left behind, or perhaps even blown away by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. We see this metaphor of metallurgic refinement all through the Hebrew Bible, too. The books of Proverbs, Isaiah, Zechariah, and, of course, Malachi, have explicit references to refinement of the heart by God. 
Let's take a closer look at that Malachi passage. Early Christian writers saw Malachi as the last of the Hebrew prophets, though there were writings from after his time in the Bible. By Malachi's day, it wasn't enough to stand in the streets or even in the temple and state to the people, thus saith the Lord. Many had copied that style and been refuted, so just speaking those words was not enough. Malachi's style is different. He uses almost a question-and-answer model that grabbed people's attention. Listen. You said, serving God is useless. What do we gain by keeping his obligation or by walking around as mourners before the Lord of heavenly forces? So now we consider the arrogant fortunate. Moreover, those doing evil are built up. They test God and escape. You can see how that grabs attention, really makes you think about what he's saying. In this way, Malachi serves as a mirror to the people, presenting their own arguments and refuting them one by one. It's a sophisticated rhetorical technique, allowing people to provide answers and leading them to draw their own conclusion. Then those revering the Lord, each and every one, spoke among themselves. The Lord paid attention and listened to them. You see? In his way, Malachi was revealing to the people the refining that God was already doing among them and would continue to do. The messenger of the covenant in whom you take delight is coming, says the Lord of heavenly forces. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can withstand his appearance? He is like the refiner's fire or the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. They will belong to the Lord, presenting a righteous offering. Here, the refining is offered in the future as a thing to come. But to prepare, Malachi is encouraging people to turn back to God, to cease doing the things that cause harm in the world. Everything from adultery to telling falsehoods, to cheating people out of their hard-earned silver, to brushing aside the foreigner. As we continue in Lent, as we continue to examine ourselves for the tarnish of sin, this warning carries a real weight to it. This is what that tarnish is. Now, I'd like to give you a practical demonstration of this idea, but since I couldn't really bring a foundry into the sanctuary, I had to change my plans a little bit. Uh, Remember that Malachi refers to both a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Well, let's use the reference to fuller's soap to give a visual today. Now, fuller's soap is lye. Um, One of the constructions of it is lye, L-Y-E, not L-I-E, caustic base alkaline substance. Here we have a clear container that it may be hard to tell, but it's filled with a purple liquid. I tried a new method to refine this purple liquid, and it ended up being more cloudy than it was supposed to be. So I have a light to shine to show you that it is indeed purple. Hopefully that helps. This purple liquid represents the human condition, the way that we are filled with both grace 
and sin. A mixture, if you will. Now, human condition as we go through life without God would tend to become more and more red from the adding of sin into life. Without God, there's no way to come back from this. You just add more. The acid of sin stays with us and turns more and more red. But fortunately, that's not the whole story. For you see, God's grace, of which there is an overflowing jar, continues. And God's grace is sufficient to overcome even the worst of sin. God's grace should be green. It's a little hard to see that, but green grace poured in until we too are filled with God's grace. And now, even if I were to add more of the sin to this mixture, it would not turn red, for God's grace overcomes all that is in the world. Jesus, filled with grace, refines our soul, bringing out the love and grace that God had intended. And the more that that grace is active in us, the more we can share with each other in community. Look, this jar is almost overflowing. Imagine if this were to be poured into the next jar, into the next, and God's grace continues. After all, Peter reminds us it is good to continue rejoicing together. Wrapped up in the metaphor of refining the soul is the idea that our faith is, at its core, at our core, pure. No matter how the toxic lead of sin has wrapped around it, after all, we were originally created in the image of God. And even if we have fallen from this perfect state, Peter reminds us that our inheritance in God is kept in heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. This inheritance is ours not because of what we have done, but because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so this golden faith, this silver faith, this shiny metal faith is within us and preserved, no matter what happens, becoming even more visible as the heat is turned up, as the world tests us and brings its heat to us, that faith becomes refined. Now, Peter isn't telling us to seek out testing. No, in fact, uh, he's reminding us that if we find ourselves in the furnace, we will glow with the heat and find ourselves showing the faith of God all the more clearly, not to seek it out, but as a comfort if we find ourselves in that situation. Even if we tarnish again and again and again, God's grace is enough to purify us again and again and again. May you always recognize the difference between filth and faith, 
knowing that God wants you to be whole and at peace. May you be filled with joy even through times of intense heat, knowing that Christ is leading you through. May your soul be refined so that the Spirit of God will blow away your dross and leave behind your pure golden faith. Amen.